Heavenly Father, we are here today for you because of what you've done for us. That when we were lost in our sin, you sent your one and only son, Jesus, who willingly left the glories of heaven and laid down his life for us so that we could be brought into a relationship with you. And Father, I pray that everything in our lives would reflect the reality that you love us and you desire to do a work in us. And so, Father, over the next few minutes, I pray that you would continue to meet with us as we look at your word. I pray that you would, through the work of your Holy Spirit, challenge us and teach us. Because, God, we need to hear from you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. It is good to see everyone this morning. For those of you that are watching online, thanks for tuning in there as well. Um, if you are a guest with us, thanks for being here. My name is Bill. It's my privilege to serve as the lead pastor here at the table. And after the service this morning, if you have any questions about anything that you hear or anything about the church, I would love to just spend a few minutes with you and answer those questions the best that I can. If you're online watching us, shoot me an email. We don't want you to, if you have questions about the church or about what you hear, we don't want to leave those questions unanswered. So my email, it's real easy, Bill S. So first name, uh, first letter of initial, last name, I don't know, whatever that, I, I, you got to help me out, somebody help me, um, at thetablecc.com, it's really easy, right, that's probably made that far more complicated than I needed to. Hey, our family recently has been watching a series show called A Series of Unfortunate Events. Originally, it was a series of children's books, at one point turned into a movie, and then most recently turned into a series on Netflix. It tells the story of the life and troubles of the Baudelaire children who were suddenly orphaned when their parents are tragically killed in a fire. At least that's what is presented in the first episode because where I have seen, uh, it seems like the parents are still alive, but we're not really sure. Now, the way that the story goes is that the Baudelaire children have uh, inherited an enormous uh, wealth that is kept for them in a trust until the oldest child turns 18. And they didn't have a close relative that they could go live with, so finding a next of kin becomes challenging for them. And basically every episode what happens is, is they go to live with someone, and they think it's going to be okay, but then something bad happens. But then at the end of the episode, something good happens, and then they can seek to find happiness in this next place wherever they go. So there's something good that happens every time, but also at the same time in every episode, the evil Count Olaf tries to do something to steal their fortune. So in spite of the fact that there are good things that happen, every time something bad happens, and that's why the show is called A Series of Unfortunate Events. I wonder how many of us, as we look back over the course of our lives, might be able to describe our life stories as a series of unfortunate events. That doesn't mean that good things don't happen, because they do, but over and over again, what you see is disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. Where life just didn't work out the way that you thought it would, or the way that you wanted it to. And so maybe as you look back at your life, what you see is a series of broken relationships. 
maybe with the opposite sex, but maybe not necessarily just with the opposite sex, that there was a good friend in your life for a period of time, and now they're not. And there was another friend in your life for a period of time, and now they're not. Or maybe as you look back at your life, you see a series of unfortunate financial mistakes. Or maybe you you did something, you got behind. Maybe even you tried to do what was right for a certain time, but then another unfortunate event happened in your life and you got further and further behind and now you just don't know what to do. Or maybe as you look at your resume, what you see is a revolving door of work failures. You kept taking new jobs thinking that that would bring you happiness or significance or whatever it was, but over and over again, those things just disappointed you. And so as you look back, maybe you, you, you wonder, what would have made a difference? If I'd have done this instead of that or made this choice instead of that one, would that have changed the course of my life? For all of us, as we look back at our lives, we recognize we've made mistakes. And with certain things, certain decisions, we likely would want a do-over if that were possible. There's nothing we can do about it. We can't go back. The only thing that we can do is look forward and try to figure out if we can do something different as we move forward. But you all know the definition of insanity, right? It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So maybe the issue as we look forward is not doing better or trying harder at the things that we've already done and the things that we've already tried. But maybe what's needed is a radical reorientation of our lives so that we live differently. And I believe that's what Jesus calls us to. I want to talk a little bit about that this morning as we look at Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through 13. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, it will be on the screen as I read it here in just a second. Or if you have the YouVersion Bible app on your smartphone, you can get that out and navigate your way to our live events. If you go to the bottom and hit more, then events will come up on the next screen. You can follow along there. There's a lot of helpful information in our live event. Our digital bulletin is there. There's some questions for reflection and things like that. But this passage that we're looking at today at the beginning of Luke chapter 4 is the passage that describes the temptation of Jesus. I grew up in church. I've mentioned that before. And so growing up in church, I was taught a lot of the Bible stories. And this one, I don't know if I was taught it this way or if this was just my impression, but I have always viewed this section in a very simplistic manner. That what Jesus does in this passage is teaches us how to not give in to temptation. We're going to look at this in just a second because what Jesus does with the temptations that he faces, he answers the devil with Scripture. And so I kind of always thought, well, when you face temptation, if you quote Scripture, then the devil has to flee from you and you won't give in to it. Now, I believe that knowing Scripture is really, really important so that we don't buy into the lies of the enemy. But yet at the same time, I really believe that Jesus is doing something far more significantly here than saying, when you face temptation, just quote scripture and everything will be okay. Because what I think Jesus is doing in this passage is helping us to see that there's actually a better way to live that keeps us from these temptations as much as possible. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy, because it it is hard. 
a radical reorientation of the way that we live differently than the cultural values around us. That's hard, but that's what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. Let me read this, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Before we get into the three specific temptations that this passage describes, I want to point out some of the details of this passage because there's some things in here that are really important for us to, to notice and then understand. And the first thing I want you to see is, if you go back and look at that, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he would be tempted. It's easy to get the wrong idea that the reason that we face temptation is because we have done something wrong. Like we are in the wrong place, and that's why we face temptation. Now, we can face temptation because we are doing the wrong things or find ourselves in the wrong place. But at the same time, we could be doing everything right and still face temptation. Jesus here, led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and he faced temptation. Second thing, it's really important to notice that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that the reason that Jesus never for even one second considered or even could consider actually giving into these temptations is because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. There's some different ideas as to what that means. In fact, as followers of Christ, the Apostle Paul commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What I think that means is not that we get more of the Spirit, but that the Spirit gets more of us. That to be filled with the Spirit means that I submit and surrender everything that I have back to God so that in everything that I do, I seek to please and honor God. That God's character flows through me in everything that I do. And so when I am filled with the Spirit, being willing to let the Spirit make sure that that is true in my life, I will not give in to temptation. The last thing I want you to notice about this, it says that Jesus was led into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days. And then at the end of the passage, it says that the devil left him until a more opportune time. I think what, how I understand that is that during the 40-day period, Jesus wasn't only tempted three times. But that what we have in this passage are three temptations that were representative of what Jesus went through during the entire 40 days, and likely faced throughout his life at different points and times. And that's why, like we talked about last week with Hebrews 4.15, Jesus could be tempted in every way like we are, but yet was without sin. And so again, here's what I want you to know about this passage. It's not just Jesus saying, hey, here's how to 
quote scripture so that you don't fall into temptation, but he is pointing out that there is a better way to live, a, a different way to live, and he's calling us to reorient our lives around these things. And the first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus helps us to understand that we must reject the mantra, I must look out for me, and instead I need to trust God to meet the needs that I have. So we must reject the mantra, I must look out for me, because if I don't look out for me, no one else is going to look out for me. That is a value that is prevalent in our culture, that I have to put myself first and make sure that my needs are met. But Jesus points out there's a better way to live, and it's by trusting God to meet every need that we have. First temptation, it's found in verse 3. So we see that Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days, and he is hungry. He didn't have anything to eat during that time. And so the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus said in response to that, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now the question is really what's behind this temptation? What I think the devil is actually tempting Jesus to do is use his divine power for selfish gain. Let me paraphrase this interaction. It's the devil saying, Jesus, you know what? You're sitting out here for 40 days all by yourself. You haven't eaten anything so that you can concentrate on your stupid relationship with the Father. This doesn't make any sense to me. You have the ability to get food for yourself. Just command those stones to become bread and get something to eat. But Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone. Now, we'll never be tempted in the exact same way that Jesus was here. We can't do what Jesus was being asked to do by Satan. But yet, at the same time, we can easily fall into the trap of thinking, I have to look out for me because no one else is going to do it. And what that leads to is an incredibly selfish way to live. I have to look out for me. And that is the guiding principle of my life, making sure that my needs are met regardless of what other people are like around me. And I just wonder if you can look back at your life and say that you have experienced a series of unfortunate events. Maybe part of the reason is because that has been your guiding principle, that it is all about me and making sure that my needs are met. What Jesus is doing here is giving us a better way to live so that we don't have to live in an incredibly selfish manner, but a selfless manner where we're living to please and honor God, seeking to, to make sure that God's character is evident in our lives and then trust God to meet our needs. I heard years ago somebody say that there are three ways that you can view people. You can view them as objects in your way. You can view, you can view them as obstacles to overcome or objects to be used to get what you want. Or the last way is that you can view them in the same way that God does. As people who are made in the image of God, who deserve to be treated with love and honor and respect. If the guiding principle of your life is, I have to look out for me because no one else will look out for me, you have to, you are forced to view people either as obstacles to overcome or objects to be used. There is no other way to view people. But I think Jesus is calling us to live differently. 
You know, some of you, you might be here and you're not really sure about these Christian beliefs, you know, this faith stuff. And maybe you've heard some things about the life of faith. And maybe what you've heard is that you need to trust Jesus to get you to heaven. And being in a relationship with God does provide that. It provides us forgiveness for sins so that when we die, we are able to go to heaven. But God's plan for us is far more than just that. Because Jesus gives us a better way to live, to change our lives now in preparation for what is to come. And so Jesus says here, in response to Satan, giving him this this test, he says, man shall not live by bread alone. That's all we read in Luke's gospel. But in Matthew, the quote continues and says, but by every word that comes from God. And so as we recognize that Jesus provides us a better way to live, where our goal is not to put our own needs first, but instead reject that and trust God to meet our needs, which allows us to live selflessly, what we understand is as as we live to please God, making sure his character is evident in everything that we do, we have promises in the Bible that God will meet every need. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, pray this way, give us today our daily bread. That is a trust in God to meet the needs that we have. He later said in Matthew 6, don't worry about what you wear, what you eat, but instead seek first the kingdom of God. And when you do that, all those other things will be added to you. All of those other things will be taken care of. So Jesus here helps us to understand that we need to reject the mantra that I must look out for me and instead trust God to meet our needs. And then second, that we need to rewrite our definition of success in order to embrace God's plan. The second temptation, in verse 5 and following, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world at one moment in time and said, I'll give all of these things to you. All you have to do is worship me. Now, this one might be a little bit confusing because you might be thinking, well, isn't Jesus the Son of God? So that if Jesus is in fact the Son of God, then doesn't he have authority over all of the kingdoms? And yes, that's true. Jesus is the Son of God. He had authority over all the kingdoms. He's always had authority over all the kingdoms. But yet at the same time, there's a way that we can look at the world after the fall. So after the fall of Adam and Eve, and until Jesus it finally and ultimately establishes his kingdom, we can look at these days and refer to them as the evil days, where Satan is given some freedom to rule on the earth. And so in some sense, he's over all the kingdoms of the world. Now, what's behind this temptation, though, is that the devil is saying to him, I will give you authority over all those kingdoms if you worship me, meaning I'll give you a shortcut to the fame. Because we read in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus will be given a name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is coming, that did come, but if you back up to what Paul was saying, it came as a result of the cross. And so it's here the devil saying, listen, I'll give you all those things that are coming, and you avoid the pain, avoid the cross, take the shortcut, and you'll have everything that had ever been promised to you. But in what Jesus did and what he said, he's helping us to understand that we have to redefine success 
in order to embrace God's plan. And I'll be honest, all the things I'm talking about today, this is the one that challenges me the most. Because for some of us, so I don't know who, who can relate with me in this, but for some of us, a guiding factor in our lives is a desire for recognition. To feel a sense of significance. To feel like your life matters. And on some level, there's nothing wrong with that, but yet at the same time, what's, how, what does the pursuit of that look like? And how do you go about that? That's why Jesus is saying we've got to redefine success so that we can embrace God's plan. You know, typically we define success in our world according to things like, hey, where do you live? What kind of car do you drive? In my world, how many people attend your church? But Jesus is saying, let's redefine success because it's not about that. It's about embracing God's plan for our lives, which is far more who we are than what we do. Somebody's you version is reading out loud. Redefining success so that we're not pursuing the fame and the fortune that comes with it, but embracing who God wants us to be. Because notice Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's how we should define success, on worshiping God. Now, to worship, Cody kind of mentioned this a little bit, it's far more than just showing up on Sunday morning. It's far more than just singing. Ultimately, to worship God is that in everything that we do, we are a reflection of who God is. And so as we live that out, asking that question on a daily basis, are we reflecting who God is? That's success, and everything else may follow it, and it may not, but we're going to be okay. See, Jesus helps us to understand that there's a better way to live. We see that as we reject the mantra that I must look out for me. Second, as we rewrite our definition of success so that we can embrace God's plan. And then third, we must remember that we are called to be holy. The last temptation, the devil takes Jesus up on the highest point of the temple and says, hey, Jesus, why don't you jump off and let the angels come and rescue you? Now, here's what I think the devil is doing. He's trying to get Jesus to test the promise of God in a way that takes advantage of God. It's the devil saying, hey, Jesus, let's go do something really stupid to see if God will do what he said he would do and rescue you. I see people do this all the time. I'll tell you where it shows up. I know I shouldn't do this, but God will forgive me. I know I shouldn't, these things should not be a part of my life, but God is gracious. See, it doesn't matter what I do because in the end, I know God will forgive me. But if that's our thought and our attitude, I think what Jesus is saying here is you need to embrace the forgiveness that you have and reorient your life around the grace of God. Let me explain this a little bit more. 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in that one single verse, we do have a promise that we will be forgiven all the time, every time. Now the question is, knowing that we will be forgiven all the time, every time, does that mean that we're allowed to go do whatever we want to do? Thankfully, Paul addressed that. When he wrote the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, he talks about how we are under grace. And he says, since we are under grace, does that mean that we should go on sinning so that grace can abound all the more? So that God can rescue us when we're doing these dumb things. And here's what Paul said. My paraphrase. That could be the dumbest thing I have ever heard in my entire life. We don't have a promise of forgiveness so that we go and do whatever we want, but we recognize the grace of God that has rescued us so that we can live different, so that we can live a better life, so that we can focus on seeking to honor and please God in everything that we do, but also at the same time we recognize we're not going to get it right all the time, and that's where that forgiveness kicks in. Not because we're doing whatever we want to do, but because we have the freedom to live to please God with that promise of forgiveness when we don't get it right all the time because we never will. we got to remember we're called to be holy. What that means is we're to be separate, set apart, different, not just like everybody else. See, that's why I understand this passage to be not just Jesus saying, here's how to quote scripture so you get out of temptation, but it's Jesus saying, hey, we're going to rewrite the playbook. There's a different way to live, and it's going to be so much better for you. If you reject that mantra, where I have to look out for me, and instead I trust God to meet every need that I have, where I rewrite the definition of success to embrace God's plan for my life, which is far more about who I am than what I do, and I remember in everything I'm called to be holy, to reflect who God is in everything. And if that's the focus of our lives, I promise at some point we'll look back And no longer is there going to be a series of unfortunate events. But it's going to be a series of the gracious work of God that does something significant in us. And maybe at some point, even through us too. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, In the midst of all of the things that we face in this world, God, we need your help to radically reorient our lives around what you have called us to do, and maybe even more importantly, who you've called us to be. So Father, instead of living selfishly, may we reject the mantra that I have to look out for me, and I pray, God, that you would help us to trust in you, help us to redefine success so that we can embrace your plan wherever that leads us. And remember, we're called to be holy, to be different, to look different. Father, I absolutely believe when we embrace those things, that's a better way to live. And so in the midst of the stresses and the worries that we face, may we seek after you and trust in you. And may we be who you have called us to be. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.
Amen.